Like in the story of the three beers, some parents allow things to get too hot for their kids, and other parents keep it way too cold. God, the ultimate Father, can help us get it just right. Let's join Dave Woodson, our Truth Encounter study leader, for our message titled, Three Kinds of Parents. We can help our children learn to live, so they won't have to live and learn. I want to talk to you today about three kinds of parents. As I think about our subject, our kids and Jesus raising kids skillfully in the 21st century, I think about the fact that it's kind of scary to be raising kids today. If, you, if you're just a brand new mom and dad and you've got a little baby in your arms, one of the things that the dad or mom might be thinking of is, man, this is an incredible world that we're living in. Good night. Some of the music they're given is really violent and immoral, man. You turn on the TV and it's communicating a message to your kids. And you go over to the high school and you begin milling around with the kids. And you see all different kinds of kids. So one of the things that would have happened to me as a parent is it would scare me. What kind of a world am I raising my kids in? If you are raised in a home where there were no rules, your mom and dad were kind of leftover hippies, and they decided that everything was up for grabs and there weren't, weren't any religious rules and regulations to guide life and morality and they really weren't into the Bible, then it's very possible that you want to react to what's happening in the world today and what you want to do is you want to lock your kids in what I call a monastery. Now, monasteries in the Middle Ages were really a good thing. The world was falling apart. The Visigoths and the different tribes from up in northern Europe were invading Rome, and they even sacked Rome and then burned parts of it, and the whole world was coming apart as the Roman Empire began to dissolve. Groups of believers like yourself created these forts-like and monasteries where they went in and they copied Scripture and they kept learning alive. So I don't want to totally demean monasteries. In fact, we wouldn't even have our Scriptures in our lap today if it weren't for some of those very faithful saints that preserved the Word of God in those havens of sanity in the midst of the world system. But there was a danger in that monastery idea. The idea was believers facing the chaos in the world decided that the way to handle it was to totally withdraw from the surrounding world totally withdraw from unbelievers, withdraw from the society, withdraw from politics, move into these monasteries, and that would protect us from evil influences. And I call it the monastery philosophy. I see a lot of parents that basically are approaching the problem of evil, the problem of danger in the world, the problem of sin in the world, the problem of trying to generate godly kids. Their approach is we're going to isolate them from the world, the monastery philosophy. And basically what you do is you create a lot of rules about what you do and what you don't do. These homes have a whole lot of rules about the kind of music you listen to, the styles you listen to, the the kind of videos that you see, the kind of friends that you have. And basically the idea is I'm going to protect my child. The world out there is so evil that I want to protect this child or else they're going to be swept away in this flood of immorality and sin. And so I'm going to protect them. And I create a whole subculture within the larger culture that's going to protect our kids. There's some really great intention behind that because we all want to protect our little ones. And we want to be sure that our little ones are not put in the ocean before they can swim very well. And there are very dangerous influences out there. We don't want our kids to be exposed to evil that they don't need to be exposed to, especially we don't want them involved in evil. 
But we're going to talk today about the Savior's approach. I want to ask the Savior today, what do you believe about this idea of locking your people up in a society, in a group of people that are separate from unbelievers? So don't run away. But I want you to begin to think about what do you think about how you're raising your kids? The teenagers today can ask yourself, what's the philosophy in my home? How are my parents approaching this? What I see is that's one pendulum swing. And often I see parents that were relatively wild when they were kids and they did a lot of bad things. They react really strongly and they want to protect their kids from all the crazy things they did. And the way they're going to do it is by locking their kids into this behavior pattern with a whole lot of rules and regulations. The other hand, the pendulum swings the other way. In fact, some kids that were raised in that monastery kind of a home, they swing the pendulum over here and they say, man, my parents made me go to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night, every Sunday night. My kids had all kinds of rules. I couldn't eat this. I couldn't drink that. I couldn't go there. I couldn't watch that TV show. I couldn't do anything I wanted. I couldn't really interact with people in a normal school and all kinds of stuff like that. There's a tremendous reaction. So they swing totally the other way and their attitude is, The kids are going to experiment for themselves. I mean, they need to go out there and grow. They need to experiment. They need to find for themselves. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage all kinds of experimentation. I'm not going to put them under any kind of moral teaching. I'm not not going to make them go to church. They can decide to go to church or not go to church. They can just experiment. And I call that laissez-faire parenting. Laissez-faire, it's usually used in economics, and those of you that are in business, what it means is that the government leaves you alone. Laissez-faire means that it's hands-off. You let the market kind of express itself and do what it's going to do. And when I use that term for parenting, it's a parent that just doesn't give any direction to their kids. Their kids are just out there doing their own thing. No curfews, no standards of right and wrong. The kids are just out there hanging loose. In my own lifetime, I see the pendulum swinging back and forth. Our whole society does it. In the 60s, our culture swept towards laissez-faire. Lest you think that that was a brand new thing, the 60s is not a new thing at all. It's bohemian lifestyle. It was in the French Quarter. It's what all the American artists went over to experience, to grow their hair long and to wear beards and to wear dirty clothes and be in the French Quarter. It's really with it, you know, and have no rules and regulations to be able to be really immoral and get away with it. All that stuff has been part of the European culture for centuries. We just adopted it here. And, and the American society has gone through ebbs and flows. So the 60s is not a new thing. It's an old thing. It's called sin. And it's called rebellion. So the pendulum swung this way, laissez-faire. What I see the society doing now is we swing back this way. And so now there's a tremendous reaction. Man, this isn't going to work. You know, this produces a lot of death. So then you swing over here and you have a lot of rules and regulations, again, a lot of standards, and the whole society is swinging back and forth. We're talking about our kids and Jesus. What I want to challenge you to do is ask yourself, how does Jesus feel that we should raise our kids? What's his philosophy? And what I want to present to you today is I believe that biblically, that the Lord Jesus presents neither a monastery, rigid, religious structure, like the structure of Orthodox Judaism. In fact, one of the ideas we're going to talk about in just a minute is if you want to look at people that controlled what you ate, what you drank, who you fellowshiped with, who you didn't, what you listened to, what you didn't listen to, I want to share with you that the most brilliant people that I've ever come to know, the most brilliant intellectuals, the one that can develop systems better than anyone else, have already tried it 
And we're going to look at Jesus' reaction to that. They were called the first century Pharisees. And they're way ahead of you on rules and regulations. There's none of you in this room that's as sharp intellectually as a really sharp Jewish person in the first century that knew how to control a whole environment. And they did it not just for their kids, but for the whole society. And we're going to look at Jesus' reaction to it. But I also don't believe that the Lord Jesus adopts this laissez-faire that you just need to experiment. He presents something totally different. And it's going to be the undergirding of everything I say. I believe that Jesus teaches us that the living God can come to live in our hearts. And we want to help the living God to come to live in our children's hearts. And the living God changes their entire heart attitude. And the Holy Spirit moves in their heart and causes them to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. The living God causes them to enjoy God. The Holy Spirit causes them to be restrained from evil because the presence of God in their life. And you all accept that, but I want you to begin to think about it in terms of our parenting. I also believe that as the Lord Jesus talks to us, not about monasteries, not about a lazy fear, but about a resurrection transformation, he's also going to reverse something that almost all of us have heard from our parents. Our parents are always telling us to live and learn. Well, you're just going to have to live and learn. Anybody ever heard that? That's true. In fact, that's called the School of Hard Knocks. And the School of Hard Knocks teaches you very well. The School of Hard Knocks is a very powerful, effective teacher. But I also want to present to you an idea that I'm going to be emphasizing over and over again the next few weeks in our study is the school of hard knocks is an effective teacher, but it can be deadly. My friends, for example, that were in laissez-faire homes as they were growing up and their parents never protected them from drugs, never talked to them about the power of Christ to fill them with his spirit instead of with the spirits of drugs and alcohol. Some of those kids never made it. They died in automobile crashes. They died of overdoses. If you drink till you're totally plastered and then you keep on drinking, ethanol will poison you. But what a way to learn. It's over. And that story goes on and on. Len Bias was a great Maryland basketball player when I first started teaching the book of Proverbs. And Len Bias had an incredible contract for the Celtics. And he said he never took cocaine in his whole life. He went to a party to celebrate the signing of a multi-million dollar contract. He was going to be the Celtics' next big stars. And that night he died. So the School of Hard Knocks teaches really well, but she can really be deadly. So what I want to teach you is something totally different. Neither this laissez-faire, do-your-own-thing experiment and not this monastery. Instead, it's going to be to learn so you can live. And what you learn is to fall in love with this incredible, resurrected, powerful Jesus. Turn to Mark chapter 7. In fact, Mark chapter 7 will tell you why Jesus got crucified. A lot of you wonder, how in the world did this incredibly good, gentle, holy man, how did he get crucified? Well, I'm going to tell you. And we're going to find out Mark chapter 7 is one of the most radical chapters in all of, of spiritual literature that you could ever read. And it begins with the Super Bowl champions of legalism who tried to control people's behavior with rules and regulations coming to Jesus. Look at it. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. I want you to see this setting. Jesus is up in Galilee. He's from the other side of the tracks. And what happens is the Jerusalem Jewish leaders are concerned about this rising powerful teacher that's beginning to get a lot of people to respond to him. They send a delegation up to check them out. Now, the Pharisees were a group of people that began to develop, say, about 250 years before Christ. 
as the Jewish people began to interact with the Greek culture and all the gymnasium stuff and all the Olympics and all the uh, Greek philosophy, Plato, Aristotle and all that, a lot of Jews began to say, we're going to be overwhelmed by this. We need to produce a very strict culture. And the group of people called themselves the separated ones. And they said, we're going to take the laws of cleanness that apply just the priests, just so that the priests can offer the sacrifices. We're going to apply that to the entire nation. And we're going to try to live it just in our daily lives. And so a group of separated ones very powerfully begin to apply the strict teachings of the Levitical law of cleanliness. And they begin to come up with all kinds of rules about how you washed your hands and, and how you ate and how the utensils you used. And we're going to learn about that in this passage today. By the time we come to the first century, about 200 years later, this has become a very popular, powerful force in Judaism. As believers, as 2,000 years later, we tend to react very negatively to the Pharisees. I want you to know that these Pharisees were the ones that are going to carry the day when the Roman legions destroy all the aristocracy, all the Sadducees, and almost all the priests. This is going to be the group that grabs a hold of Judaism. And if you're from an Orthodox Jewish background, this is your heritage. This is the group that produces the great rabbinic literature. This is the group that's going to produce the Mishnah and the Talmud. This is the group that comes over in our society today with Orthodox Jews and the different branch of that, Hasidic Jews with their black coats and their forelocks and all that and all the different segments of Judaism. If you're raised in New York City, you would have close friends that are deeply involved in maintaining all these very careful culture laws. All right? That's the Pharisees. Now, the scribes that he mentioned are the experts in making the laws really work and interpreting the law. They come to Jesus. They're the recognized religious heads. They have a lot of popular support among the people. So I would expect Jesus to respond to them very favorably. In our society today, right now, for example, religion's really back in. Being a good Islamic person, being a good Jewish person, being a good quote-unquote Christian person, it's back in again. So I would expect our Savior, who's the ultimate authority about spiritual things, I would expect him to really like these guys. They're the bulwark against all these secularizing influences. So let's see how Jesus responds to them. They come, and it says in verse 2 that they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. If you're a monastery kind of a person, if your philosophy is legal, your approach to God is external, then you're very into your eyes. You're always watching what other people do. You're always observing what other people do. And then you make judgments about whether they're doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. So every one of us needs to ask ourselves, what about our eyes? When I go out with people, am I always watching what other people do? And then I do, I make judgments about what they're doing. Pharisees are always out there. They are the religious police. They're the behavior police. If you're in Islam and you live in Iran, they have the equivalent of the Pharisees in a strict application of the Quran where you have this religious police that are making all kinds of judgments about what women should do and what they shouldn't do and what men should do and what they shouldn't do and what you should eat and what you should wear. The same thing comes over into Christendom. Some of us were raised in environments where if you went to certain kinds of places, you were out. 
If you drank certain kinds of beverages, you were out. If you actually went to certain kinds of churches, even though they might be very similar, but they weren't part of the kosher, they weren't part of what was accepted, you were out. Legalists are always watching. They're always looking at others and then making judgments about that. And I have to ask myself, is that kind of a spirit in my own heart? Because that easily begins to creep into us. The Pharisees look at Jesus' disciples. What do they see him doing? They see them eating with their hands unclean and unwashed. Now Mark's going to explain to us that aren't into this, not understand all this Jewish regulation about cleanliness. Mark's going to explain to us what they do. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. What's going on here is that in the Old Testament, there were some laws given about purifying yourself. And some of them related to hygiene. Some of them just related to the way that the Lord wanted his physical people to unite together. The Pharisees took this and just drove it to extreme. And I've got a book right here. It's called The Mishnah. And there's a whole section in the back called the Yadin, which are the hands. And there's a whole section in here. To render the hands clean, a quarter log or more of water must be poured over the hands to suffice for one person or even for two. That is about an eggshell and a half of water. A half of a log or more suffices for three persons or for four. One log or more for five or ten or for a hundred. Rabbi Jose says, provided that for the last among that there remains not less than a quarter log, more water may be added to the second. Water that is poured over the hands, but more than not can be added to the first. This is number two. The water may be poured over the hands out of any vessel, even from vessels made from cattle dung. That's so the Texans could get involved in this. Or vessels of stone or vessels of unbaked clay. It may not be poured over the hands out of the sides of broken vessels or out of the flanks of ladling jars or out of the plug of a jar. This is why Jewish people throughout my whole life when I was raised are so skilled and brilliant because you have to really be keen in your mind to decipher all the arguments. And it's incredibly beautiful, incredibly skillful. It's like the New York Times puzzle coming together. Some of you are really into this. You love rules and regulations. And if you start approaching life like that, then you have to get more and more rules and regulations because there's more and more situations that you need to cover. And then you just build up a whole series of traditions. That's what happened to the Pharisees. They started out about 250 years before Christ's coming, coming up with, with trying to apply laws that were supposed to go to the heart, laws that were supposed to challenge us. Do we love God with all of our heart? If you look at the Pentateuch, there's a lot of principles. There's a lot of, of general statements of reality of how we worship God and how, like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and all your mind. And then it closes the Ten Commandments, without shall not covet. General principles that relate to all kinds of situations. The Pharisees wanted to take every one of those big general principles and put a fence around it by all these little minutiae laws and by obeying all those laws, then you would preserve the heart of it. Legalists always get into that. But the problem is you often tend, in fact, you do lose the whole point of it. And you become much more focused on how much water you use to clean your hands than whether or not your heart is clean. And that's what the Pharisees started doing. And they're all upset. Jesus' disciples are eating. By the way, they're eating probably the loaves, the miraculous loaves that were left over when Jesus fed the 5,000. The disciples had gotten into a boat. They went probably up near Capernaum in northern Galilee. 
They had some of the bread loaves left over. They're hungry. They begin to eat. These Pharisees looked really carefully and noticed that they didn't take an eggshell and a half of water and pour it over the hands. They would, first of all, pour the water this way. Make sure there was no grit in the water. And then they would take their fist and they would go like that to get that, that hand clean. Then they would pour an eggshell and a half of water over this hand with your hand up. And then you do that. But now all that water is unclean because they've come in contact with your unclean hand. So now you need to reverse it and you turn your hand downward and point your fingers downward. And then you pour another eggshell and a half of water this way. And then you do it this way. And very observant Jews were very careful. Some of them would even do it in between courses because you might have touched, like the person sitting next to you might have been rendered unclean because of some things that they did in their life during that last 24 hours and your hands might have bumped against them so you would do it again. So that's the kind of thing that's going on here. Jesus' disciples didn't do that. And the legalists decided there's something really wrong here. Mark's going to explain to us a little bit further. They give their hands a ceremony watching, and holding to the tradition of the elders, which is all this oral tradition that's now encoded in the Mishnah. When they came from the marketplace, in other words, when you come in from the marketplace or when you bring vessels from the marketplace, might be the way we need to translate it, they do not eat unless they wash all the utensils, unless they observe all these ceremonial things, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. The Jewish Pharisees were really into these laws of cleanness. So, now that we have that background, that's what's going on. We have people that are very scrupulous religiously. They're trying to obey all the rules that their elders have laid up. What rules do you follow? What are the traditions that are really important? And tradition are things that we build up traditions start to develop as people begin to work together. Some of the principles we come up with in guiding things are just so that we can live together. But what we need to always be careful to do is that we don't start allowing our traditions to block us from the heart. What happens to legalists is they lose sight of the target. They lose sight of intimacy with Christ. They lose sight of falling in love with God. And they're much more concerned about whether you obey all the ins and outs of all the rules they come up with. And I sit in a lot of meetings, not just within a church society, but within schools and everything else, and city government and everything else, where people are arguing like crazy over rules and regulations, and nobody has a clue what we're actually trying to get done. And often we're, we're, we're accomplishing the rule. It's like a bunch of pilots arguing. The plane's going down and they're arguing over the proper procedure they should do in calling the tower for help. And they fight and fight and fight and fight, but nobody ever does what we're going to do to save the thing. And that's what Jesus is so concerned about. The Pharisees were first century Super Bowl champions in that. How did Jesus respond to that? So the Pharisees turned to Jesus, who teaches the law. They asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating their food with unclean hands, you can feel the judgment. Now, how did Jesus respond? Here he's got the Super Bowl of monastery kind of religious teaching. Jesus responds right from their scripture, quoting from Isaiah. He says, these people, he said, well, Isaiah was right. Your Old Testament prophet was right when he prophesied about you. You are hypocrites. The word here doesn't have quite the idea that we have of being someone who says one thing and does another and is doing that on purpose. The idea is in the first century of an actor, 
An actor is someone who plays a part, an external part, and it might not be connected with what they really are inside of the person. Like if you ever date an actress or an actor, be really careful because they can play a lot of different roles and you better be sure you know them long enough, and that's true of everyone you date, by the way, that you can get by the acting. Religious legalists act on the outside. But all the actions they do on the outside, they think you're okay if you do all these external things, but it never touches what's going on deep inside their heart. It's moms and dads, that's one of the most important things that you can ask yourself is, am I doing a bunch of things on the outside? But what about my heart? Like I ask myself, am I teaching God's word? Am I praying publicly? Am I going to elders' meetings? Am I preaching at different conferences? But my heart isn't in love with God anymore. And my heart really doesn't praise Jesus. If I'm doing all those external things and my heart is cold, then I'm a Pharisee. And that's the worst thing I want to share. Parents, the worst thing you can do to your kids is to get that disjoint. And that's why Jesus is calling these religious leaders hypocrites. I know of pastors that will, they, they put a whole tremendous guilt burden on our people. You need to reach people for Jesus. You need to reach people for Jesus. The whole, whole society is rooted. Their whole church society is, man, we've got to reach another unbeliever. We've got to reach another believer. Every time we're anywhere, we're trying to reach someone for Jesus, which is a great thing to do. And yet, you can be in their home, and you can celebrate major holidays, like a Thanksgiving holiday, and you can spend the whole holiday with them, and Jesus will never be mentioned. Jesus will never be thanked. I might as well be in an unbelieving family because Jesus has no part. It's like there's no connection here. We're not in church anymore. We're not in our religious culture anymore. Now we're just doing our own thing. Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, kids, don't let that happen in your home. You can't do that. That's what Jesus is talking about. These Pharisees were all into doing all these religious things, but their heart was a million miles away from God. And that's why he quotes, these people honor me with their lips. They say the right things. What you say as a parent isn't the bottom line. We can honor the Lord with our lips, but where are our hearts? Are they far from me? Jesus said that their hearts were far from me. They worship me in vain. In other words, they go to the temple in Jerusalem. They do. They sacrifice the sacrifices. They eat the right food. They carefully obey all the laws of cleanliness. But their teachings are just rules taught by men. Melothian Bible Church, I don't want you to hear just rules taught by men. Our relationship with Jesus is not rules. It's love and intimacy with him. And it's resurrection power that transforms us. And whenever I hear someone teaching me about how to raise my kids, whenever I hear someone teaching me about the way that I should be in our family, I always ask myself, where is Jesus in this? Could a really sharp Jewish teacher like Dr. Lord teach me the same kind of stuff? Because by the way, in history, if you want to put ethical, moral philosophy against evangelicalism, I'll go with the Jewish people and the, and the Jesuit Roman Catholics every time. I'm serious. If you want to hear really sharp intellectual discussions about ethics, it's not among Christian radio and KCBI. It's the sharp hundreds of centuries of Jewish thinking about morality and incredibly sharp intellectual understanding 
But you know what neither one of those groups can tell me about? They can't tell me how to get a new heart. They can't tell me how to meet the resurrected Jesus who's the Son of God. They can't teach me how I can be totally honest about the terrible evil that's inside my heart, and yet God won't reject me because he gave his son to die for me. Are you hearing the difference, brothers and sisters? Because one of the things I want you to really understand is your home doesn't need just sharp ethical thinking. It doesn't need just sharp religious philosophy. It needs something far more than that. It needs the resurrected Jesus living in your heart and changing it. And your kids seeing the power of that living Christ changing you. And this is the Son of God. Don't argue with me at all. Jesus himself looked at the most brilliant religious teachers that had developed a whole system, and he said, but you're just play-acting. Your heart hasn't really connected with God. And he's coming to all of us as his followers and saying, this monastery philosophy isn't going to work because you're just going to be acting out of part, and we've got to get the real thing. There needs to be real transformation. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of man. Our human traditions will always cause us, when we get focused on our human traditions, they always cause us to lose God's heart. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own tradition. Now the Lord's going to illustrate what he's talking about. For Moses said, one of the great commandments in the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. Those are two commands in the Old Testament, right? The heart of the law and the point of it is if you love God with all your heart, then as your parents get older, you're going to take care of your parents. It's a value system that should be very prevalent among us. As our parents get older, then we're responsible for taking care of them. That was true in good first century Judaism as well. It was part of the heart of the law. But you say, this is what the legalists did with that, but you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might have received from me has been given korban, it's been given as a gift to the Lord, it's a gift devoted to the Lord, then you no longer do anything for his mother or father. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. What is Jesus talking about? This is what he's talking about. In the first century, everyone knew that God's law says the principle of God is that we should honor our parents. We should treat them with importance. We should love them. As they grow older and they become weaker and they need our help, we need to graciously give them that help. When, they're, we're, when we're younger, they're the ones that fed us. They're the ones that changed our diapers. They're the ones that put a roof over our head. And then the Lord helps things to be, to be beautiful and giving and gracious because as they grow older, then sometimes we have to, even when, the, when things get really bad, we have to change their diapers and do things like that, which is really tough. And some of you that are in my generation are doing that with your parents. That is a very beautiful, gracious thing that you do. And you're supposed to do it. But what happened to these legalists? A really up-and-coming young Jewish couple that's got a lot of money, they can say, Korban, the extra money that I have is dedicated to God. I'm going to use it to build a part of the temple. Like it would be someone like saying in our church, I'm sorry, Mom, I really can't help you. You know, I can't go and buy groceries for you this week because we're going to build a new building in Midlothian Bible Church and that's dedicated to God. Now, here's the catch. The way the legal structure worked out, you didn't even have to use that money right then for the building of the synagogue or something. You could just say it was dedicated. You could actually use it for yourself and use the interest for a while. As long as it eventually made it over, then it was okay. But you could say to your parents, I can't give you that money because it's dedicated to God. 
Now, within the self-interest of the religious leaders to say, well, that's a really good idea because we're going to eventually get our money. But instead of challenging the people, no, you need to honor your parents. You need to be sure to meet their need. You need to be sure to obey the heart of God. What was God's intent in giving that commandment to honor our parents? They got all involved in these nights. In fact, there's a big discussion in the Mishnah about whether you can get out of that vow. Like if you vowed the money and your parents really need it, can you get out of that vow? And I want you to know that probably because of the teaching of Jesus, 200 years later when the Mishnah began to be written down, in that discussion, the rabbis really moved more towards Jesus in saying that if you need to honor your parents, you need to let go of the vow. But in the first century, evidently, there was this rigidity that was so strong, and we need to ask ourselves, is that rigidity in our own home? So that's the illustration. Now, Jesus goes to the heart of it. We've learned about legalism and the impotence of it. What I want you to know, the impotence of it, is that you don't get down to your heart. It doesn't deal with what's really going on, on the inside. And with our little children, from the time they're little, little tiny children, we want to be asked about what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in my heart? We want to watch out for that split between what we're doing on the outside and what we're doing on the inside. Now the Lord Jesus explains to the people. Jesus turns away from the religious leaders and now he talks to the people. Jesus called the crowd to him. That's you and I, just normal people. He said, listen to me, every one of you and understand this. And this is some of the most powerful teachings, so listen to me. Jesus says, nothing outside a man makes him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Now listen to me. The legalists think that it's things that come into your kids, things that come into you from the outside that make you unclean, specifically physical things often. Like in the first century, the idea was if you ate food out of an unclean vessel, it made you disconnected with God. You were unclean so that you were not in relation with God. And in order to get clean, instead of cleaning your heart, you needed to clean the plate. The way some of those arguments come over in our culture is almost my whole life we've had major debates on music, for example. Some of you had the idea that there's certain sounds that are evil. They're physical things. But you hold that sound is a devilish sound. And it makes your kids evil. Now, we're not talking about the words. That's a totally different ballgame. We're not talking about the concept. We're not talking about the message. We're just talking about sound. By the way, in the, in the high music of, of the Middle Ages, they had what they called Satan's chord. And if you've ever heard Cezanne's Dance of the Macabre, we always played it Halloween. It's that weird chord in, in the Macabre dance. They held that was the devil's chord. Well, what I want to share with you, the devil can use that chord. He can use a lot of chords, but the evil's not in that chord. It's not in that drum. It's not in that succession. The evil's much deeper. It's what's going on in our heart, what's going on in our thoughts. And that's what I want you to start to hear as parents. Because what you want to be dealing with is what about relationship and what about what's going on in my own heart? And I got this from Jesus because he said, I want you to learn that nothing outside of man is what makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man. He says, after he left the crowd, the disciples asked him about this. Are you so dull? I love the Lord. He's so, you know, he's so non-Dale Carnegie. He says, well, are you stupid? <laughs> Forgive me when I say that, but the Lord Jesus says that. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside? Now, now some of you get on me, because I'm going to talk to you about a lot of things that you've never heard before in church. But I promise you, I will never teach you things that are not in the Bible. In fact, in all my years of ministry, I've never been quite as blunt 
or quite as crass as the Bible is. In fact, if I translated some of the direct Hebrew statements, it would really be wild. It's very possible that your heavenly daddy is not nearly as uptight about things as some of you are. And it might be that your heavenly daddy wants to talk to you about some things that you don't want to talk about, but he wants to talk about it, and he's not uptight about it. And this is the way our Savior taught. There's a big discussion on what makes people unclean is they don't wash their hands right and the food that they eat. Look at how the Lord deals with their argument. There's nothing that enters a man from the outside. No food that he eats, no drink that he drinks can make him unclean. Why? Because it doesn't go into his heart. It doesn't go into his personality. It doesn't go into his mind. It just goes into his stomach. And then out of his... And the text is much more blunt right here. And then it says this. By saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean anything to you. But in the first century, that's why Jesus got crucified. Jesus got crucified because a whole group of religious people said, our food laws hold us together. In the Maccabean revolt, a mom watched her sons. The sons would not eat what the Greek conquerors wanted them to eat. And in Maccabee that tells the story, the fourth Maccabee that tells the story, as they cut off one of her son's ears, and then they cut off his tongue, and then they began to shave his skin, and the mom cheers her son on and says, be devoted to Yahweh, do not eat that food, do not eat that food. And it's one of the dominant stories of the Maccabean revolt. And then she watched her next son killed. She watched her next son killed. They were fighting words in the, in the second century. If you were Jewish, what held your society? My friends, when I was raised in New Jersey, my friends that were Jewish, one of the dominant things that held them together as a people, one of the dominant things that expressed their relationship to Yahweh was their commitment to the food laws. And we had whole special restaurants for that. Some of you are from other parts of the country where there's other groups of people that have the same kind of laws. And our Savior said an incredible thing. I'm Yahweh. And those laws aren't important anymore. And I don't want you to be divided. This is one of the food, and we've talked about this in the past, but your rules divide you from people. You say, how do I know what kind of a parent I am? If you're the kind of a parent that's so scared to be with other people, you don't ever take your kids out with people that are different from you. You're always locking your kids up. The people you're with are always the same thing. They think the same way you do. They act the same way you do. I want to share with you, you're you're protecting your kids, but it's not going to change the heart of your kids. Because the Son of God said, the Son of God said, all foods are clean. We don't want to be constantly looking at what other people eat, what other people drink. We don't want to kind of like, oh no, they're such horrible people, I need to get out of here. Your Savior has opened the door for you to go out this week and be in all different kinds of situations. And I'm not speaking against Christian schools. I'm not speaking against against homeschooling. If you're homeschooling, that's a beautiful decision you've made. We want to encourage you in that. But if you're homeschooled, we want you to be coming up with creative ways for you to play ball with unbelieving kids for you to have friends with unbelieving families, to go to museums with unbelievers. If your kids are only around believers, now listen to me. If your kids are only around believers and they never see their unbelieving friends come to Jesus, they're not going to see the power of God. Every one of my kids believe in Jesus and it's all by grace. But I want to tell you one of the dominant things. If all four of my kids were here today, I could ask them, what held you into Jesus? My friend would say, Pam was a whore. And we saw in our home. And we saw mom and dad and Dave and Deb Lowry and Dan and Jeannie Bauckham trying 
to work with that girl. And we saw all the ins and outs, and we saw her bring her friend Gail. And we saw Gail come to Jesus, and then we saw Dad do that funeral when Gail went home to be with Jesus because of a terrible infection she had. And we've had doubts many times whether or not Jesus was the right intellectual answer. But we have never doubted that Jesus was alive and well. My kids would say, we went to Wallace and Lane McWhorter's when Wally had just come to know Jesus as his Savior. And this electrician worked on the line at, at Gifford Hill would sit down with my boys and say, Jonathan and Joel, I used to go down to, to Fort Hood. And I was drunk as a skunk when I came back from my MP duty. In fact, a lot of times on that old highway coming up from Waco, I didn't even know where I was. And then on a Mother's Day, I went to a church out in East Texas. And a preacher reminded us about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And Jesus Friday again, I remembered what I'd heard in church as a little tiny boy. And my son David went to the front as they invited all the men to come. And I walked to the front. And all the men knelt down. And David grabbed my hand. And I, for the first time in many, many years, knelt before the living God. And Odette Lee challenged me that day. She gave me a Bible and she said, God's going to bring a man into your life that will teach you. And the next week, Kenny Thompson and Dave Wurtson came to our door. And my life through Jesus was changed. I told Van Kent, home with Jesus. My kids knew Van Kent. He's a rugged cowboy, worked for the county with Al Bauckham. They would go out hauling hay with Van, and Van would cuss up a storm at times, and he was a rough guy, maybe tell some dirty jokes. And my kids were with him. He'd go, oh, no, Horace, what's going to do to your kids? Well, Van jumped off a hay bale, got a blood clot in his top of his head, and it kept pressuring his brain more and more and more. The doctor said they needed to drill into his skull. And I went into his hospital room at Baylor, and he said, man, Dave, you need to pray for me. And Van humbled his heart before Jesus and really opened his heart and let the resurrected Jesus come inside of him. And they drilled a hole in his head, but Jesus drilled a hole in his heart and changed it. And Van's home with Jesus now, and when he went home to Jesus, the place was packed because of all the lies, especially little children that he read to from the Word of God. My kids were exposed in a church family where that was the reality of Jesus that they constantly saw. They saw sinners become changed saints by the power of the living Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that he can change the heart. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that goes out? Saying that the outside things aren't the in thing. But look at verse 20 as we close. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceitful, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside the man. That's what makes them unclean. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What's our kid's greatest problem? Our kid's greatest problem is not the drugs that's out there. It's not the music that's out there. It's not the video that's out there. It's not all their evil friends that are out there. Those are all things that are going to influence them. But the greatest problem they have is what Jesus just shared, the inside. And none of you want your kids to be immoral. None of you want your kids to be murderers. None of you want them to be slanderers. None of, none of you want them to be evil people. And Jesus is the only one that can change them. He changes them not by locking them in a set of religious rules and regulations. He changes them not by just letting them experiment. And he totally destroys the pendulum swing. Instead, 
Jesus invites them to humbly let him to come into their life. My point today is there's three kinds of parents. There's monastery parents trying to protect their kids. There's laissez-faire parents. They're trying to let their kids hang loose. And both of those things are deadly. Jesus instead invites you to be a parent that will let God come into their heart, Jesus come into their heart, and help them to learn so they can live. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to ask you that your word, that this Mark 7 passage that really led to Jesus' crucifixion, the religious leaders got all angry with him because he rejected all the external rules and said, no, you need to really respond from the heart. And Lord, as we look at our heart today, we're so thankful that it tells us the truth about our heart and that our immorality and our anger against one another and our drunkenness our use of our tongue and all these things are not from outside influences. It's not because of our environment. It's because of us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you told us the truth about that. But I'm also thankful that you expose not just the reality of our evil hearts, and even our little kids have evil hearts, contrary to almost all the popular thinking. But Lord, I'm thankful that Jesus not only tells them they have evil hearts, but that Jesus loves each one of them and can give them a new heart help each one of our parents that have young children and older kids to ask themselves what kind of a parent they are. I'd ask you, Lord, that some of them that are too protective and have too many rules and regulations, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to ask themselves about where their heart is. I'd ask you, Lord, for some of our parents that are way too lazy fare, too easy, no standards, just kind of letting their kids out there. I pray, Lord, that you would move them through the power of Jesus to help their kids to be disciplined and to learn what's right. And help us in the next few weeks as we continue to wrestle with your word about how to parent the way the Lord Jesus wants us to parent. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.